0: W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. And cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to have a few moments of silent prayer, as always. Whenever we sin, the Scripture says, we break fellowship with the Lord. Because every sin was paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross, we don't have to do anything in order to uh, get God's forgiveness or gain God's forgiveness. Christ already paid it all, the Scripture says. All we have to do is... In the privacy of our souls, admit or acknowledge our sins to God the Father. Scripture says if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Sin is always a matter that is to be kept in privacy between the believer and God the Father because sin is a violation of the standards of God and His righteousness so that it is not a matter of... Anyone's else's business. So we just, did, in a quietness, silence of silence, pr- silent prayer, admit our sins to Him. So let's pray a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to look at your word, that it is your revelation to us. You have given it to us, and not only that, but Jesus promised that he would send to us the Holy Spirit who would make all things clear, that we are, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit who helps us to understand his word. Father, we pray now as we look into your word that you would help us to understand these things that we might Uh, respond to them. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand your grace more fully. That everything depends upon you and not upon us. That we can do nothing to merit anything from you. You have done it all. And Father, we pray that you would, uh, help us to see these things clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Maybe you haven't seen the evening news, but today is, uh, A tragic day. There was a tragic uh, court ruling in a federal appeals court in San Francisco today, which just demonstrates once again the evil agenda of the liberal left. Federal appeals court in San Francisco ruled that the Pledge of Allegiance was unconstitutional because of the phrase, under God. Frankly, this really reveals a lack of education on the part of the judge because in his ruling he compared the term to a more definite term such as Jesus or a more specific name deity, when in fact the English word God is simply a generic term that could refer to any deity including just some abstract concept of God. Listen to what he said. He said, a profession that we are a nation, quote, under God is identical For Establishment Clause purposes, that's First Amendment, to a profession that we are a nation under Jesus. See how he equates under God with under a specific deity, under Jesus, a nation under Vishnu, a nation under Zeus, or a nation under no God. Because none of these professions can be neutral with respect to religion. Judge Alfred T. Goodwin wrote, now, the problem with that is, of course, that would also make the Declaration of Independence unconstitutional because it recognizes that our inalienable rights come from a creator. And uh, once you take away an understanding of, of the existence of God and the existence of an absolute deity from whom we receive our rights, from whom we receive our life and breath, you end up basically destroying all freedom. We've studied that a lot in the past. I don't mean to belabor that this evening. But it's remarkable that in no other culture in history has anyone experienced the level of freedoms we have in the United States, and that is because this nation was founded upon principles that came from the Scripture, because it was founded within the uh, construct of Judeo-Christian ethics and Judeo-Christian Values That doesn't mean it was a Christian nation, but that means that the thinkers thought within that framework. And at no other time in history has there ever been a nation or an empire or a civilization that has the kind of freedoms that we have. You can't get there if you start from any other point other than Christianity. Only Christianity has a basis for giving people the freedom of volition to reject it. You do not have those kinds of freedom in any Islamic country. You don't have those kinds of freedoms in Hindu countries or Buddhist countries. You only have those kind of freedoms which developed in the uh, culture of Western Europe. And the more that culture was influenced by biblical truth, the more the nations so impacted, developed concepts of freedom. That's a historical fact. But the problem is today we have judges, everyone from judges sitting on federal benches, to kindergartners in elementary school are ignorant of history. And once you are ignorant of history, as Hegel pointed out, you are doomed to repeat it. Now, a second thing happened today. Somebody sent me an email. And this email I want to read because it demonstrates a tremendous level of courage by someone who is living in a, a situation of extreme adversity. You'll also see as I read through it that it relates to the subject that we're studying in Daniel chapter 11. Now, the writer is not a believer. The writer is not a Christian. The writer, though, demonstrates a marked level of courage in the face of adversity and if an unbeliever can face, have this level of courage in the face of adversity, then how much more should a believer who understands that God is in control and that God controls history? This is from a woman in Israel. She says, "I am not the least afraid to go any place by bus or to a mall. I didn't change or stop doing anything I used to do before this mess began." People tend to forget that twice the casualties from terror get killed on the roads. More people still die from heart attacks, cancer, and other things. They just don't show them on the TV news. Don't misunderstand me. There is a war going on, and it's not pleasant, but let's face it, we have never been better. It's only TV and media that make people think it's the end of the world coming. Only 60 years ago, they were leading Jews to their death like sheep to the slaughter. No country, no army. 55 years ago. Seven Arab countries declared war on the small Jewish state, only a few hours old. We were then 650,000 Jews against the rest of the Arab world. No IDF, no mighty air force, just tough people with nowhere to go. Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Jordan, Egypt, Libya, Saudi Arabia attacked all at once. The country the UN gave us was 65% desert, the country started from scratch. Thirty-five years ago, we fought the three strongest armies in the Middle East and wiped them out in six days. We fought against different coalitions of Arab countries with modern armies and masses of Russian Soviet weapons and still won. We have today a country and an army and a strong air force and a high-tech economy exporting millions. Intel, Microsoft, IBM developed their stuff here. Our doctors win world prizes for medical developments, We made the desert flourish, selling oranges and vegetables to the world. Israel has sent its own satellite into space. We proudly sit with the U.S., 250 million people. Russia, 200 million people. China, 1.1 billion people. The Europeans, France, England, Germany, 350 million. As the only countries in the world to shoot something into space. Israel is today in the world nuclear power family with U.S., Russia, China, India, France, and England. We don't admit it, but everyone knows it. To think that only 60 years ago we were led, shameful, with no hope to our death. We crawled out of the burning ashes of Europe. We won our wars here with less than nothing in our hands. We built an empire out of nothing. Who the heck is Mr. Arafat to make me scared or terrified? You make me laugh. Passover was last month. Let's not forget what the story is all about. We overcame Pharaoh. We overcame the Greeks, the Romans, the Inquisition in Spain. We overcame the pogroms in Russia. We overcame Hitler, the Germans, the Holocaust. We overcame seven other Arab countries at once. We overcame Saddam. Take it easy, folks. We will overcome these two. No matter what part of human history you tried to think of, of, For us, the Jewish people, our situation has never been better. So let's lift our heads high and remember any nation or culture that tried to mess around with us was destroyed to the ground while we kept going. Egypt, anyone know where their empire disappeared to? The Greeks, Alexander of Macedonia, the Romans, anyone today speak Latin? The Third Reich, anyone heard of any news about it lately? And look at us, the nation from the Bible, from slavery in Egypt, we are still here speaking the same language. Right here, right now, the Arabs don't know it yet, but they will learn there is one God. As long as we keep our identity, we are eternal. So sorry for not worrying, crying, or being scared. Things are going fine here. They surely can go better, but still don't fall for the media junk. They won't tell you that there are festivals going on. People keep on living, going out, seeing friends. Yes, our morale is low, so what? It's only because we weep for our dead while they enjoy the blood, and this is the same reason why we will win after all. You can forward this email if you choose to the whole of the Jewish community in the United States and the world. They are part of our strength, and it might help some of them to keep their head up high. Tell them there is nothing to worry about. Tell them to think big and see the whole picture. See you next year in Jerusalem. The only thing missing from her email is the fact that she doesn't recognize that the reason there is still an Israel is because of the promises God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the Old Testament. That God planned a pur- and had a purpose for calling out that particular particular nation, that special nation, and that that history is part of our study in Daniel, Daniel chapter eleven. In the sixth century B.C., God outlined in specificity what His plan for Israel would be in the Old Testament. Most of the events that we're studying in Daniel chapter th- chapter eleven have already come to pass. They came to pass just as God said they would come to pass in the prophecy of Daniel chapter 11. See, God is the God who controls history. God is the God who is working out his plans and purposes in human history. And those plans and purposes included included a place for Israel because it was through Israel that God would send the Messiah, the Savior of the world who would die on the cross for our sins, liberals and those who reject the Bible continuously attack it. And as we studied last time, this chapter is one of the most attacked because it clearly shows that that God has spoken in time. God has in detail forecast the future two to three hundred years in advance, and in incredible detail. For us, fulfilled prophecy is a miracle. It's a miracle because we can't see or witness, we haven't. We can't know or talk to anybody who saw or witnessed any of Jesus' miracles. Unfortunately, many of the so-called miracles in contemporary society are just that. They're so-called miracles. They're not documented in the way that the biblical miracles were documented at that time. Neither are they on the same grand scale of miracles. But the miracle that we can see, that we can still witness, is the miracle of fulfilled prophecy because we can read the scriptures and see just how precisely God foretold the future through Daniel. And then we can look at 200 years later in time and see exactly how that prophecy fulfilled, and that gives and provides evidence for the veracity of scripture. We also saw last time in our introduction to this study that it was necessary for the pre-incarnate Son of God to give this revelation to Daniel because he was preparing the Jews for what would happen during the next 400 years, that just as today it would be a time of anti-Semitism. And anyone who is anti-Semitic, anyone who has ever blamed the Jews for anything, any, anyone who has ever uh, attacked Jews is playing the devil's game because the devil wants to destroy Israel because Israel is God's people and God still has a plan and future for Israel. And Satan's strategy is that if he can destroy every Jew from the face of the earth, then he thinks that he can defeat God. And it's sad to say that there are some churches and some institutions and some governments that are dead set against the nation Israel. And that is the subtle form of anti-Semitism today. It's not the kind of genocidal anti-Semitism of Adolf Hitler, but it is the kind of, it is more subtly masked in an anti-Israel attitude today. And we have studied time and again the atrocities and the horrors of and the lies that the Palestinians put forth. They are not Philistines. They have no uh, traditional right to the land, they continuously put forth their vile uh, propaganda that is nothing but lies, and continuously the world takes their side instead of the side of Israel. And all of that is a testimony to the veracity of Scripture. As this woman points out, time and time again, People have sought to destroy Israel, and yet they're still there, still in the land that God gave them, still speaking the language that they spoke 4,000 years ago. And if anything is a testimony to the reality of God and his plan in history, then the very existence of a Jew is a testimony to that plan. You can't find an Assyrian today. You can't find a Sumerian today. You can't find a Chaldean today. You can't find a Mede today. You can't find a Philistine today, but you can still find Jews. They still survive, and that is a great testimony to God's plan. The purpose in providing a detailed revelation like this to Israel at that time in history was to give them hope. I covered that last time, and I want to develop that idea a little more this evening. You you can't survive in a crisis on emotion alone. That's why so many people in our emotion-oriented, self-absorbed, subjective culture are finding it possible to survive with the threat of terrorism only because they're on Prozac, only because they're on Zoloft, only because they have some sort of medical crutch that enables them to handle a crisis. What about their parents and their grandparents who made it through World War II without the crutch? Of drugs. It's primarily because that generation had a, had a character that was built because of the influence of the word of God in the Bible that, that still impacted that society and it no longer has that impact today. I'm not talking about religion. I'm not talking about ritual. I'm talking about the truth of God's word, not these other things. That's what God was doing in Israel. He was giving them content, giving them information so that they would have real hope, substantive hope. They would have not just some hope that I hope or wish that things will be okay, not just some optimistic desire, but a firm certainty. That for after all, that's what the word hope primarily means in the scripture is a confident expectation. The Bible talks about our salvation as a confident expectation. That is our hope. We look forward to the coming of the Lord. That's our blessed hope. We can know that more surely than you can know that you're going to make it home this evening. You can know that more surely than you can know anything else in life because God has spoken in his word. Today I sat down and I started thinking about hope. And I did a search of various passages And I came across the 130th Psalm, and this provides a fantastic background for the kind of thinking that is engendered and that God wanted to engender in Israel at this time. We're not told who wrote it. There is no superscription in Psalm 130 as to the particular uh, historical circumstances surrounding it. It could have taken place at any time in Israel's history, but the indication is that it is related to... Uh, a time of adversity, a time of difficulty, a time when the nation was faced with divine judgment and they were calling upon God for his His forgiveness. And then the, it ends with a focus on God's hope, the hope that God provides the believer based primarily on salvation. So turn with me to Psalm 130 in the superscript. It says a song of ascents. That means that this became adopted into the ritual practice of the tabernacle or the temple in the Old Testament the choir as they ascended the steps into the temple would sing this particular song it begins out of the depths I have cried to thee O Lord now if you notice on the overhead the turn and in your Bible the term the Lord is in all caps that means that it is a Rendering of the sacred tetragrammaton, the sacred four letters of the Hebrew alphabet for the designation of the personal name of God. You see, the Bible talks about a personal God, a God who has a personal name. It is Yahweh. This is uh, not the generic God of the Pledge of Allegiance. It's not the generic creator of the Declaration of Independence. But this is Yahweh who entered into a personal covenant with the nation Israel on Mount Sinai. It is the same God who entered into a personal covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see, it's not enough to believe in God, to believe in some sort of abstract idea of a a deity, some abstract concept of, of a creator, the God of the Bible, is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of the Bible is the God who sent his son, the eternal second person of the Trinity, one with God the Father in essence, yet distinct in personality, sent his son to the earth to die on the cross as the payment for sin, as the substitute for sin. So we don't just believe in a generic God, just some concept of an abstract deity, because that, that deity has revealed himself to us. See, God is, the God of the Bible is a personal God. He's an infinite God, but He's also a personal God. And as a personal God, He communicates directly to mankind. He can have a relationship with mankind. And as a personal God, He has communicated to man information about Himself and how to have a relationship with Him. He is a God of compassion, a God who is intimately concerned with the Heartaches and difficulties of our life. This passage begins. It is a what is called a lament psalm in the Old Testament. It's a a lament psalm is a plea or a cry for help or assistance when there is some crisis of adversity in life. Now people face many different crises in life. Some face crises of health. Others face crises of finances and money. Others are going through difficult times in their marriage. Others face difficulty in romance and in, uh, their, in their social life. Perhaps it's in your career. Some folks are facing crises right now in terms of weather and weather-related disasters, such as the folks in Arizona and Colorado who are dealing with the tremendous fires that are burning through those states. And often when we face any of these, we also have another crisis that goes along with them, and that's the crisis of disappointment. We're disappointed in life, the way life has turned out, the disappointment from broken dreams and shattered hopes and unfulfilled expectations. And here the psalmist expresses that common feeling that many of us sometimes face when we go through a crisis. I want you to notice that the Scripture never minimizes those emotions. It never disparages them. There's no, there's no castigation of the writer of this Psalms for feeling like he is down in the dumps or down in the depths as he expresses it. The Bible always take, God always meets us where we are, not where he, not where we ought to be. While the Bible never glorifies human emotion, and neither does it ignore the emotions that humans feel. Because emotions are unavoidable. It's not that the emotions are wrong. It's what you do with them that are wrong. It's, it's how you let them affect the decision-making process that's wrong. When we feel down in the dumps, when we feel overwhelmed, when we feel discouraged and depressed, when we let that depression dictate the decisions we make, that's when it becomes sin. When we look at the depression, the discouragement, the emotion and say, I am not going to let that dictate my life. I'm going to make decisions based on the truth of God's Word. That's when God is glorified. And we see the process in these lament psalms as the psalmist starts with where he is in terms of his discouragement, being overwhelmed with whatever adversity he faced. And we see how he moves through the situation as he focuses on the absolute truth of God's Word. He begins, Out of the depths. Out of the depths I have cried to thee, O Yahweh. Out of the depths is a figure of speech used to describe the overwhelming nature of adversity, we might use an English idiom like "down in the dumps" or "under the pile," overwhelmed by life, overwhelmed by disaster, disappointment. But it's in the midst of this disappointment that the psalmist is able to turn to the only real solution, and that's God—the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. He faces the reality of his adversity. And he turns to God and he cries out and there's strength, there's passion in what he is saying here. He says, Lord, hear my voice. You get a sense from this because of the Cal imperative that is used here. It's an imperative of request that that he is in desperate straits. He feels like he's lost all hope because probably he has been pursuing every path he could think of to find meaning and happiness in life. We know that because that happens so frequently in the Old Testament with Israel. They were always trying to find meaning through the fertility worship of the various fertility cults, or, or like most Americans, trying to find meaning in life through success, through building a business, through relationship, through various details of life. And when it all fails and comes crashing down, there's nothing in life, perhaps it's more miserable, that makes your soul ache more than facing those crises. And so he turns to God and he cries out, Lord, hear my voice. It's an imperative of request. And here it's addressed not to Yahweh again. Notice the Lord is not uppercase. It's lowercase. He's crying out Adonai. Adonai is the Hebrew word that is more like our generic word Lord, which is a polite form of address. It's almost as if he's saying, Sir. Sir. He has already addressed God as Yahweh, so we know that he is a believer in right relationship to God. And here, by using the word Adonai, he is expressing his uh, adoration of God, and his respect for God. Furthermore, the Jews rarely, if ever, pronounce the name Yahweh out of respect for God. Usually, they, in fact, in the Bible, when they read the scriptures, they have the pointing, the the vowel points underneath the. Four consonants are the vowel points from the word Adonai to remind the reader that as they read out loud that instead of reading the name of God, Yahweh, they would see that in the text and instead they would substitute Adonai. Sometimes if they're talking about God in the third person, they would just use the word, the name, Shem. So he says, Lord, hear my voice. He's crying to the guy, pleads with God. Let thine ears be attentive. He repeats that phrase in and synonymous parallelism. Let thine ears be attentive. He's using an anthropopathism, uh, an anthropomorphism here, because God doesn't actually have ears, but he is ascribing to God human bodily characteristics so that we can understand what he is saying, so that we can understand the, the, the something about God. He he's crying out to him to listen to what he has to say to the voice of my supplications. He says, let thine ears be attentive, and this is the adjective of the Hebrew word kashuv, which means to acquire knowledge, to learn, to pay attention, to focus on something, to concentrate. He expresses the idea that many people do when they go through crisis. Well, Lord, how'd you where were you when all of these things happened? Were you concerned about the Middle East, or were you focusing on terrorism in the United States, but somehow you forgot me and my problem? You know, just wake up, Lord. and..." Come back and pay attention to me now. You know, we feel that way sometimes. But what we have to do is deal with those emotions and those feelings with the absolutes of God's Word. Verse 3, he expresses a condition. And he's focusing on the holiness of God. That's what underlies this passage if you, if you look at the back, what the backdrop here, because he talks about sin. He says, If thou, Lord, Once again, addressing him as Yahweh, If thou, Lord, shouldst mark iniquities. And here we have the Hebrew word shamar, which means to keep, to observe, or to pay attention to. And he says, Lord, if you paid attention to our sins, if you paid attention to our iniquities, and iniquity is the word avon, which is the breaking of a commandment, says, if you paid attention to every time we broke a commandment, no one could stand up before you. No one would have any hope. No one could come into your presence. No one could ever have a relationship with you. Lord, if you paid attention to every sin that we commit, who could stand? You see, the psalmist recognizes the principle of Scripture, and that is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That every single human being is a sinner. Everyone has violated the standard of God. And there is no way that anybody can do anything to please God, to impress God, to somehow cause God to look at us. That's the point of Scripture, is that as sinners, we are obnoxious to God. The most pleasing personality, the most wonderful person, the most altruistic, giving, charitable individual is obnoxious to God. We may think they're wonderful. We may elevate them to a high place, but the Scripture says that all of our works of righteousness are as filthy rags. In the eyes of God, all of our religious rituals are filthy rags. Because God never authorized any religious ritual for the church age outside of the simple Lord's table done for the remembrance of what took place on the cross. You see, we are all of our works of righteousness, all of our best, is nothing to God. That's the problem. Man is arrogant. We think that somehow we can do some little something to gain God's attention and impress him with who we are and what we've done. But the psalmist says, Lord, if you paid attention to our sins... No one could stand. Who could stand? But in contrast, he points out in verse 4, but there is forgiveness. See, if you paid attention, no one could stand. But in contrast, there is forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be feared. Now, we have to look at a couple of words here to understand the concept that he's talking about. Forgiveness is crucial because this is a concept that is poorly understood in modern culture. People think that you can forgive somebody without any payment of any kind of consequence. That's not what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches God is able to forgive us because the penalty was paid. He doesn't just forgive us out of the goodness of his heart, because he's just a kind and benevolent God. He looks at you and says, well, I know you really didn't mean it, and I know you had better intentions, and I know you were sincere, so I'm not going to hold it against you. That's not the way forgiveness is Used in, the Bible. in fact, the word for forgiveness, both in the Old Testament and New Testament, has to do with the pay- payment of a price, the forgiveness of a debt. It is both words, Old Testament and New Testament, are, are words that come out of economics, that come out of finances. If, if I loan you money and you owe me a debt, and then at the end of a year I say I'm going to write you a, uh, I'm going to end the debt, I'm going to cancel the debt, I'm going to forgive the debt, that means that when I tear that paper up, that I can't come back ever again and say, you owe me $5,000. That's what forgiveness means. But it's, because, it's based on something in Scripture, and that's what we're going to discover in the passages we look at this evening. There is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. There is forgiveness. See, we're not stuck with our sins. God has a perfect plan so that he can remove those sins. This is related to hope, verse 5. In fact, let me say one more thing about verse 4. There is forgiveness with thee. The word here in the Hebrew is the word saliyah. Now, this is a unique word in this passage because this word is only used with God as the subject. Man cannot offer this kind of forgiveness. Only God can. It's a forgiveness that is unique to God and the reason God can forgive sins is because the sins were paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. See, we can't forgive the debt if if I write if I loan you $5,000, you can't do anything to abolish that debt. It has to be paid off. But what the scripture says is you can't pay that debt off. We'll see that in just a minute. You can't pay the debt off, and I'm the only one who can cancel it. And yet what happens in most religious systems that have developed in human history is the people are trying to pay the debt off themselves, and people can't do that. Mankind can't do anything to pay the debt of sin. Only God can forgive sins. And and the interesting thing here is that if you go to the New Testament and look at passages like Hebrews chapter 9, it talks about the fact that in the Old Testament even the forgiveness offered by the priests and the Levites was ineffective. Only God can forgive sins. No priest ever could forgive sins. Not even the Levitical priesthood authorized by God in the Bible could forgive sins. They were only what they did was only a picture, only a temporary provision, only a foreshadowing of what can only happen through Jesus Christ. You see, the Bible teaches that there is only one God and only one mediator between God and man. There's no authorization for a priesthood because a priesthood is ineffective. Only one God and one mediator between God and man, and that's the man, the perfect man, Jesus Christ. Scripture teaches with relation to forgiveness that no matter what you have done, no matter how bad it is, no matter how awful it is, no matter how discouraging it might be, no matter what you have done, God is greater than you are. God is greater than anything you and I can do. God is greater than any sin we can commit. And God is the only one who can solve the problem. And the point of using a verb like this here in verse 4 is to drive home the point that This is the basis for respect for God, for fear of the Lord, is because of all that he has done for us. We're undeserving, we're obnoxious to God. He did it all. All we can do is simply accept it as a gift. So the psalmist goes on to say in verse 5, I wait for the Lord and my soul does wait. Now there's several different words in Hebrew for the concept of hope. And in fact, if you look at a King James translation, or the New King James Version, you'll discover that, that instead of the word wait, like we have here in the New American Standard, you'll have the word hope. This first word that's used in the first two lines is from the Hebrew word kava, which means to, to wait, to look for, to hope. I wait for the Lord, and it indicates that aspect that hope is something future, something that we have to wait for, something that we have to uh, look forward to. It is something to anticipate. We wait for the Lord for deliverance. We anticipate it. We know it will come. Waiting involves the very essence of a person's being, your soul, what it takes to wait, to be patient, to wait for the Lord's timing. Isaiah 40:31 says that those who wait upon the Lord shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Waiting, therefore, depends upon how much you know about God and his word and how much doctrine is in your soul. You can't wait for the Lord if you don't know how the Lord works and if you don't know anything about God and if you don't know anything about doctrine. You know, it's interesting if you... If you know anything about church history, the history of Christianity, especially in this country, one of the things that is tragic today, as opposed to years ago, is that very few Christians today could recite from memory 20 verses. And yet that was something that was emphasized years ago in Sunday schools and prep school and churches. Churches would have contests to see for people to memorize Scripture. Because you see, when we get in the crises of life, what matters is a doctrine in our soul and the scriptures that we know. That we can recall those promises to our mind. And that needs to be something that is, that is a priority in all of our lives, is to take the time to learn to memorize scripture so that we can use it. The psalmist said um, that he thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And yet very few Christians are doing anything about hiding God's word into the mentality of their soul. The psalmist can wait on the Lord because he knows what he says and what he, what the Lord has revealed, and that's the next clause, and in his word do I hope. It is in what God has revealed, in the doctrine of his word, the promises that God has revealed, that we have hope. And here it's a different word. It is yahal which means to wait, to hope, to have a confident expectation, a certainty of what will take place, something more certain than than anything else in life. Remember, faith is, Scripture says we walk by faith and not by sight. When the Word of God is more real to you than what you see, what you feel, what you experience, that's when you're learning what faith is all about. Faith is not faith in faith. It's not just believing something because you want to believe it. It, it, There's always an object for faith, and if that object for faith isn't something that is specifically stated in the Word of God, it is a false object for faith, and you're just propping yourself up on quicksand. Waiting involves knowing God's Word, knowing His promises, and knowing that what God has promised will be realized and fulfilled eventually. In the meantime, the believer endures. He hangs in there because of the integrity and uprightness of his own soul developed from the word of God that has power in transforming the individual believer's own character. So the psalmist then goes on, can go on to say in verse six, "My soul waits for the Lord." Notice he's no longer self-absorbed. See, this is the biggest problem with people today. They're focused on their problems. Poor me, this is happening, that's happening. This person rejects me. That person doesn't do what I want him to do. I don't have a job. Uh, my health isn't what it could be. Why is it that everybody else seems healthy and I'm struggling with a health problem? Instead of focusing on our problems and being self-absorbed, notice how he shifted. He starts off, I, I, I'm crying from you out of the depths. He's focused on the circumstances and not the solution, but he quickly turns to the solution. And he says, my soul waits for the Lord. And then there's a comparison here. More than the watchman for the morning, indeed more than the watchmen, watchmen for the morning, we miss the import of that, not living in a culture where you lived in a walled village and you had... I had to have watchmen out to protect the city against any kind of bandits or any kind of problems. But the night watchmen would look forward in anticipation of the coming of morning so they could finally go to sleep. Verse 7. Oh Israel, hope in the Lord. See, this is the cry that relates it to our passage in Daniel 11. The hope, the confidence that Israel should have should be in the Lord. That's why God revealed the history of Daniel 11. And so that they would have confidence in the Lord. And when things got way out of control, when Antiochus Epiphanes is bringing his army down through the heart of Israel and killing Jews everywhere, when he is setting up the abomination of desolation in the temple, when all of these things are happening, when the economy falls apart. See, all of these things could happen here. We have another terrorist attack, and it could make the Great Depression back in the 20s look like a time of prosperity. Americans don't know how to handle crisis anymore. Everybody's scared to death, and you can't handle crisis if you're propped up by drugs, only if you're propped up by character, and character only comes from the Word of God. And you can only have it if your starting point is faith alone in Christ alone. Psalm 130, verse 7 says, O Israel, hope in the Lord, your confident expectation is in the Lord. That's the only place you can put it. You can't put it in morality. You can't put it in church. You can't put it in a organization. You can't put it in ritual. You can only put it in the Lord himself. There's no intermediary. Remember, the only mediator is the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, For with the Lord there is loving kindness. Notice he starts off by saying, Lord, if you paid attention to our sins, nobody could stand. Then he says, but with the Lord there is forgiveness. Now we understand the dynamic of it. It's based on this word loving kindness, which is the Hebrew word hesed. And hesed means grace. It means undeserved mercy. It means God's faithful, loyal love. That God is faithful and loyal even when we are unfaithful and disloyal. With the Lord there is loving kindness. There is steadfast, loyal love. And with him is abundant Redemption. See, redemption comes from His loving kindness. Because redemption is based on grace. Grace means an undeserved gift. It means unmerited favor. It means you don't do one single thing to merit it. Now, you see, some people talk about meriting the love of God, meriting the merit of Christ, meriting the the salvation. And that's just playing a word game that destroys the meaning of grace. I remember somebody told me one time, I was uh, going through some difficult times helping out my folks and and my mother was going through some health problems and this individual said you're earning a lot of grace. Think about that. That is a destruction of language. See grace is something that is unearned. That's what the word means. It's a free gift. You can't do anything to earn grace. And yet this person said you're earning grace. That's that's ridiculous. And yet there are many people who are very religious and very moral, and that's what they believe you do is you earn the grace of God, but that destroys the meaning of grace. Grace is something that is a free gift that is yours no matter what you do, no matter how bad you are, no matter how obnoxious you are. It's still yours because it doesn't depend on you. It depends on the giver. That's the hardest thing for people to understand, to get past the pride and realize that that they can just accept something and not have to do one single thing for it, and it's still theirs. It says, "With That's the basis of God's loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption. The word there in the Hebrew means more than sufficient, more than you can ever imagine. He has not only done everything necessary to save you, he's done more. The word for redemption is the Hebrew word padah. That's the verb form, which means to ransom, to rescue, to deliver. I want to focus on that first word. It means to ransom. That means to pay a price. Now, what's the price? That goes back to the concept of forgiveness, which has to do also with paying a price. In order to have forgiveness, a price has to be paid. Well, that price was paid for, we're told in the Scriptures, by Jesus Christ that he paid a redemption, not with corruptible things from our empty manner of life, but with his precious blood. He died as our substitute. You see, that's what this verse goes on to say. The idea of redemption is further explained in Psalm 49, verse 5. There the psalmist says, Why should I fear in days of adversity, when the iniquity of my foes surround me, when I'm surrounded by terrorism, when we have the threat of terrorism, the threat of dirty bombs, the threat of a uh, perhaps a nuclear explosion, the threat of uh, perhaps the assassination of a president or a nuclear attack on Washington, D.C., or another attack on New York or some other place, when we're surrounded by our foes, the psalmist says, why should I be afraid in days of adversity when the iniquity of my foes surround me? Even those who trust in their wealth. See, there are people who think that they're wealthy enough to survive this. That Some people think they're wealthy enough that they can give enough to the local church to guarantee a place in heaven. They're trusting in their wealth. They're trusting in something they do. Or, or Even those who boast in the abundance of their riches, that they're talented enough, they're kind enough, they're, they're, they've been given enough in order to be able to uh, s- survive the adversity. But the psalmist says, no man can by any means redeem his brother. No human being can by any means whatsoever. You can't give enough money to God. You can't be good enough. You can't bargain enough. You can't uh, engage in enough ritual. You can't say enough ritual prayers. You can't by any means do one thing to redeem yourself or anybody else. Or give to God a ransom from him. No man could do that. Why? Because all men are sinners. It took someone sinless to die as our substitute. That's why God sent his son, the eternal second person of the Trinity, to die on the cross as our substitute. No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly and he should cease trying forever. That means quit trying to impress God with trying to get saved. Quit trying to impress him by how much you do. Quit trying to impress him by how much you give. Quit trying to impress God by ritual. Quit trying to impress God by going to church. Quit trying to impress God by how sorry you feel for your sins. See, none of that impresses God. The redemption of the soul is so costly That no human being can pay the price or even try to be worthy of the price or to merit the price. It is a completely free gift. It is a payment. That price is paid so that we can live eternally and not undergo decay, Psalm 49.9. Let me go back to Psalm 130, verse 8. The psalmist applies this to Israel and says, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquity. See, and that's our future hope, that we will see future redemption. Jesus Christ has already fulfilled this promise when he paid the price for sin at the cross. This is what Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, such as silver and gold from your aimless manner of life, Received by tradition from your father. See, there's all sorts of religious traditions. It's what the Bible says. But with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Jesus Christ paid the penalty in full for our salvation. For the salvation of every human being on the planet so that the price is paid, the gift is given. All we have to do is simply accept it. To believe that Jesus Christ died for our sins. Nothing more, nothing less. That's the basis for hope. This is the same thing we got into at the introduction last time in Romans 5, 3-5. Where Paul is talking to the Romans about their Christian life and says, Not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations. doesn't matter how threatened this nation is. It doesn't matter how much we might lose. It doesn't matter how horrible things might get if there's a chemical attack if there's a nuclear attack or whatever it might be we have courage to stand above that in fact we can exalt as believers in our tribulations because we know something we know that god is still in control that's what this lady referenced in her in her letter is that god has always been in control over israel's destiny and Nobody's been able to destroy it. So we exalt in our tribulations because we know that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. That's the process. And hope does not get disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now we looked at this chart last time, just a brief outline of the process. We go through adversity, difficulties, hardship, health problems, financial problems, romantic problems, whatever they may be. That's adversity. It's pressure. We can choose to try to solve it on our own, or we can choose by letting God solve it. To do that, you have to start by being saved. After you're in the family of God and you apply the word of God, you stick with it. You stick with the word. You stick with applying it. You persevere. This produces Evidence of demonstrated integrity, real integrity, not integrity that comes from just being moral, but integrity that comes from applying the word of God, and this in turn produces hope. And the word there in the Greek is elpis, meaning confident expectation. We have confidence so that despite how hard things get, how difficult they might become, we still have confidence in God and we can still exalt and have maximum happiness and joy no matter how tough things get. That same passage, Paul goes on to say that while we were still helpless, while we couldn't do one single thing, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't die for the nice people. I mean, because there are no nice people. Remember, Romans 3, Paul said, there is none righteous, no not one. So when he says he died for the ungodly, that means every human being, because every one of us is defined as ungodly. For one will hardly die, he says in verse 7, for a righteous man. In fact, among men will hardly die for somebody else. Though perhaps for the good man, someone might dare even to die. But, verse 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, while we were still obnoxious and hostile to him, Christ died as a substitute for us. Huper plus the genitive indicates that he died as our substitute. He died in our place. He pay, paid the penalty in full for each one of us. That's the basis for hope. We know God's in control. He's in control of history and has worked out the details of history. Now, this is exactly what Daniel is reminding the Jews about and what he's going to tell them about in Daniel chapter 11. It says, Now I tell you the truth. behold. Three more kings are going to arise in Persia. He's going to give them detail after historical detail of what will take place so that they can have confidence no matter what might happen around around them historically. They can relax knowing that God is still in control. That no matter what kingdoms rise and what kingdoms fall, they can relax. It says three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. Last time we looked at these in detail. The first king that was already present at that time was Cyrus, so he's not one of the three. He was succeeded by his son Cambyses, who was succeeded by an interloper who's called by historians pseudo Smerdis. Cambyses has secretly had his younger brother assassinated. So you have all kinds of intrigue back then. Just as today. And he had his younger brother assassinated, and so the religious elite, the magi, who were the Zoroastrian priests of that era, had an imposter come forward and claim the throne while Cambyses was down fighting in Egypt. Well, pseudo only lasted a couple of years. Cambyses was assassinated on his way back to regain his throne pseudo Smerdis lasted a year, and he was succeeded by Darius Estaspes, one of the greatest leaders and organizers of the ancient world. Now, when we look at all of this, and all of this chaos going on, we ought to ask the question, what was God expecting the everyday Jew to be doing in the midst of all of this crisis? We have to go back to Jeremiah 29, verse 7. There Jeremiah told them that while they were out of the land, while they were living in the midst of all this chaos, this was the principle. They were to seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you to live in exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will have welfare. You see, the Jews were out of the land. Some of them came back to the land, but they were still under the domination of these empires. And they were to pray for the empires. They were to pray for the kings, and they were to pray for its welfare so that that they would have welfare and peace to go about the Lord's work. That's the same principle stated in 1 Timothy 2.1. First of all then, Paul says, I urge that in treaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority, and that includes stupid, historically illiterate, liberal judges who make decisions like stating that the, that the uh, Pledge of Allegiance is unconstitutional. We're to pray for these people. Why? That we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This we've talked a lot about prayer and how to pray and how to argue a prayer, argue in the sense of a uh, of a legal term before the throne of grace. And one of the things that that is keeps coming back to me that we need to make a part of our prayer life is that this country has continued to be blessed to exist because it sends out missionaries, because we stick with Israel, because we have, for the most part, rejected anti-Semitism. We are a bulwark of truth in the world, and we need to pray to God that he would protect us for that reason so that we can continue to send out missionaries, support missionaries, continue to support the missionaries that are around the world, And that's a challenge to local churches. Local churches need to be sending out missionaries. How can a nation send out missionaries if the local churches don't have a strong vision for missions? And we need to support Israel. The minute we stop supporting Israel, we sign our death warrant. We need to go to the throne of grace, and we need to petition God on the basis of our history that he continue to protect and preserve this nation so that we can continue to do those things and then, uh, hopefully God will protect us. Unless, of course, as I've said before, we are near the end times, and Jesus is returning soon, and he's moving things along the prophetic timetable. This is the basis for hope. This is what Daniel is building into the people of Israel so that they can survive the crises that's about to hit them historically. We may have the same crisis, so we too need to focus on our basis for hope, which is the word of God, the grace of God, and our complete salvation in Jesus Christ. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to look at your word, to realize that our hope is built, as the song says, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, that it's his death. His blood stands for his death on our behalf, his spiritual substitution, on our behalf on the cross and that at salvation we receive his perfect righteousness. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning or this evening that is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would realize that you have made a promise in your word that we can know with absolute 100% certainty that if we die tonight, we will end up in your presence. That you have said that all we need to do is believe in Jesus Christ. We don't need to believe and go to church. We don't need to believe and participate in ritual. We don't need to believe and be good. We simply believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith alone in Christ alone. Father, you've made it clear in your word that you reject works. Anything that we try to do to make it better, to try to add to what Christ did, just destroys the gift. So, Father, right now, we give the opportunity to anyone here who's never... Put their faith alone in Christ alone to do that. Right where you sit in the privacy of your soul, all you need to do is believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He was buried and rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. Father, we thank you for the encouragement of your word, the strength it gives us to to face any and all historical disasters simply because we know that you are the God of history and you are in control, and therefore we can exalt in our tribulations, because we know what you are doing in history. We pray all these things now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.